a reading from Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34. Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34. Maybe we'll have this text memorized at the end of these sermons. If you're in Ezekiel, go back to the left. (laughs) Verse 31. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and on their hearts I will write it. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach again, each man his neighbor, and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. God. You may be seated. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we know that you are able to supply us with your spirit, both for the hearing and the preaching of God's word. And like my hearers, I, the teacher, am in great need of grace this morning. And so grant us the respective grace that we need, both to teach and to hear, and give us all grace to obey, believe, and do your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in the opening sermon of this current short series of sermons, I quoted in the opening address of that opening sermon uh, a line from dear Dr. Sam Waldron, the president of Covenant Baptist Seminary. Sam, of course, said about Jeremiah 31, the text we've been looking at, he said this, that the new covenant is the constitution of the church. Yes, just as the U.S. Constitution determines the life of a nation, America, so the New Covenant determines the life and function of the Lord's church, end quote. And so in the first sermon, what we established was that the New Covenant directly applies to the church. We saw that the New Covenant is fulfilled in Christ and the Lord's church. We refuted in that sermon also the error of dispensationalism. We saw that their teachers teach that the new covenant would not be fulfilled until a future and millennial kingdom. The Bible does not teach that. The Bible teaches that in the present age and in the eternal age, the new covenant is fulfilled throughout Christ, through Christ and his church. Seven passages that say that. And then we looked at three passages that show that the church is the true Israel of God that's always meant to be in God's plan. That was the first sermon. I'm doing this for our memory as members here at the church and for the sake of our guests. The second sermon in this series, last week, we looked at the New Covenant, Jeremiah 31, and we looked at the first of its many blessings that are listed in the New Covenant. What's the provision that God makes in the New Covenant first and foremost when he saves someone or rather when he brings someone 
into that covenant? Well, he writes law on their heart. And we saw that that law being talked about in Jeremiah 31, 33, that is the prominent blessing of the new covenant, is the Ten Commandments that he writes on the, on the heart of people. So that the Ten Commandments become the ruling power, spiritually speaking and morally speaking, of the Christian's affections. They're given love for the law that's supernatural. And we looked at a bunch of texts last week. And those first two sermons, of course, are on the website already, so you can avail yourself of them for your, your edification. Prayerfully, the Lord uses it to edify you. And um, here today we come to the next portion of Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. And I want to focus my attention on the very next promise in verse 33, which after God says he's going to write law within, he's going to put law within them and write it on their hearts, it says, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Now, the promise that there will be people who will indeed be God's people is a promise backed by all of his infallible omnipotence. My assertion this morning is going to be that the new covenant's central feature is sovereign grace. Sovereign grace. I need to ask you a question that's going to hang over the whole of the sermon. Will God have a people for himself or will he not? And you'll see why I ask that question as I go. But keep that open as a window, you know, on your desktop, on your internet. Keep that, open that window in your mind and put it there. And come back to it. Unminimize it every now and then. As we go through this text. Dominant in the thoughts of many Christians in Baptist churches, evangelical churches, definitely in Catholic churches today, are, is, is a thought and a system of theology called Arminianism. Arminianism not notice I did not say Armenianism. If you're from Armenia, you're uh, if you're from you're Armenian. But Armen, M-I-N-I-A-N, at the end of the word, is a system of thought and theology that crept up in uh, the 1600s, and its central tenet is this: free will is sovereign in salvation. That's the central core tenet of Arminianism. Free will, in the final analysis, is the hinge upon which salvation turns. This is what almost all evangelicals today believe. Billy Graham himself said it this way, Salvation is 99.9% .9 God's work and 0.01% your choice. I hope that for some reason that doesn't sit right with you. You see, in the final analysis, what decisively brings a person into the kingdom of God? Is it a decision they make 
Or is it single-handedly the work of God's grace? I'm going to swim up against, not in this church, but in most churches, a very, I'm going to swim upstream of a very revered river of thought. Where free will is the ultimate determinant factor on whether or not someone's saved. And I'm going to argue that it is grace alone that drives someone completely into the kingdom of God. So what do we see as we begin to look here at our text? Well, I have three points, of course, here for you. A, a denial of uh, my assertion, which comes from the Arminians. They affirm that, that free will is sovereign in salvation. I affirm that grace is sovereign in salvation. And the Arminians, as I said, did creep up in the 1600s. Let's limit ourselves to Protestant church history as we speak for a moment. This is important, and you're going to see why in a moment. At the Synod of Dort, in the place of Dortrecht in Holland in the 1600s, um, there was a group of men, scholastic theologians, who appeared in the Holland church and began to accuse it of false doctrine and false teaching. And the church in Holland had been established for quite some time, for probably for about 100 years at this time. And they had always taught what every Protestant since the 1500s had taught. They taught that grace was sovereign in salvation and not man's free will. Man doesn't will himself into the kingdom of God. God wills an individual into the kingdom of God. That's what they taught. Martin Luther taught it. Read his book, The Bondage of the Will. You can come to no other conclusion. He taught that God's grace was sovereign in salvation. Read the writings of Ulrich Swingley of Switzerland, another of the three premier Protestant forefathers, forebearers, if you will. Swingley taught divine predestination, election. God is sovereign in salvation. Read John Calvin. He taught it as well in Geneva it wasn't just a Calvin teaching it was a unanimous teaching of the early reformers of the Protestant movement matter of fact go back further than them go back to a hundred years before Luther to John Huss you ever heard of that guy John Huss was cooked by the Roman Catholic Church for teaching sovereign grace they burned him at the stake for teaching the Bible and guess what? He taught God's grace is sovereign in salvation, not man's free will. So he had to go, according to Rome. And then I think if you just keep going all the way back to Augustine, about the 4th or 5th century, you see Augustine just leveling the delusion of man's free will being sovereign in salvation in tome after tome. Then you go back farther than Augustine to, oh, you know, first two centuries, guys like Irenaeus and John Chrysostom and Justin Martyr and Polycarp. And if you read their writings, which are abundantly available to you online, you'll find that they were teaching sovereign grace alone for salvation. And well, then you go back to what? The earliest of church, the Bible and the, the apostles and Christ. And we're going to find that they were teaching that sovereign grace alone determines salvation. So that this is a holy Christian doctrine that I'm going to be preaching because the church has always taught it, even though this truth has always been under attack. 
And so I'm going to defend, Lord helping me, sovereign grace and salvation. And I want to do it covenantally. I want to do it from the Bible. And so the denial comes from those who are Arminians in our history, those remonstrants who showed up in the Synod of Dort and uh, attacked the Holland Reformed Church's beliefs. There was a synod, as you know, that followed that attack. Uh, they had a group of men uh, who basically showed up at an international synod of the Reformed of all of Europe, and they, they, they purported five things that they had trouble with in the teaching of the church in, the, in Holland, and guess what happened? They could not defend from the Bible their beliefs, so within the first two weeks of the synod, they were dismissed. And uh, the synod went on meeting and reaffirmed uh, sovereign grace. And it came out as what we know as the Canons of Dort. And so if you go on the church website, there's a series where I preach through the Canons of Dort. And so you can avail yourself of that there to supplement today's teaching. But I want to do this covenantally, not just historically. We talked about history. And uh, it's important to know the history because often people engage in a debate today about Calvinism versus Arminianism, as it's commonly called. And they have no idea, historically, any of the progressions, any of the contours of that argument. When, we, when people argue today about Calvinism versus Arminianism, they often do so out of ignorance. And I don't mean to be ugly to anybody. I mean to, say, I mean to ask people, do you know what the churches of the Lord have always thought and taught on this topic? Or... Are you just shooting in the dark without any background to what's going on? Therefore, history can be helpful. But the scriptures, my friends, are ultimate as in to determine what we are to believe and what we are to teach, not history. History is helpful for us to know and grow because we have teachers and lessons from history on these things that will inform us on these things. But scripture ultimately is to determine what it is we are to think and believe about these things. So I want to do this covenantally from the uh, covenant-framed meta-narrative of Scripture that God has given to us. And so leaving history, we go back into Jeremiah 31. And what do we see here? Well, I think as we read Jeremiah 31, and now I'm going to go into my defensive uh, of Calvinism, essentially, um, we see that uh, the new covenant... Just reading it here in this text in Jeremiah 31 puts a great impression on us of God's determination to have a people for himself. Matter of fact, I'll deal with my defense under three headings. So if you're taking notes, you have uh, the denial, Arminianism. They teach that uh, free will, sovereign and salvation. My affirmation or assertion is that grace is sovereign and salvation. And now I'm showing it covenantally three ways. First, we're going to see that in Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, God shows sovereign determination in the language of this text. He shows sovereign determination to save in the language of this text. Then we're going to see the unbreakable character and nature of the covenant that's revealed in this text. And then finally, we're going to see a mediatorial guarantee given by the mediator of the new covenant that this will come about. So first, let's look at the language of sovereign determination inherent to the passage. The best way to see this is by way of the contrast that we talked about last week in the passage. We said this passage itself contrasts the old and the new covenant. 
Well, let's read, uh, keeping your finger in Jeremiah 31, go back to the left in your Bibles, to Exodus 19. Exodus 19. And let's contrast the language of the Old Covenant with the language of the New Covenant as it talks about spiritual matters and salvation in particular. You yourselves, verse 4 of Exodus 19, 19 verses 4 through 6, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. Of course, to Moses. And so here in Exodus 19, we see that God promises in light of the Exodus, in light of him bringing them out of Egypt and bearing them. I love the rich language here. He bore them on eagles' wings. You know, those of you who watch Lord of the Rings and the eagles come in, that's how God delivered old Israel from Egypt. And he, I love that, that phrase, and I brought you to myself. And... I know I'm going to get ahead of myself here, but I have to say it because it's ringing in my ears right now and in my heart. There is absolutely no way typological Israel could have saved itself from Egyptian bondage. It could not choose to leave Egypt. God had to come in and smite the gods of the Egyptians and take them by his hand by himself and bring them out of Egypt. And if they are a type of the church, as we saw two weeks ago, that means our salvation is the exact same. We cannot choose to leave our bondage to sin and become Christians apart from God, breaking the chains of our sin, grabbing our hearts, and leading us to himself. That was just extra. So now, if you will indeed, he tells them though, in the old covenant, if you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession. So the old covenant was contingent upon the obedience of the Israelites. They could be disinherited as a national tribe, of a theocratic tribe before God, if they were disobedient. It could happen. Notice what he says. If you obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples. There's these things you can be, Israel of old, if you obey. So there's ifs and thens in the old covenant and the relationship God cuts with them there. I hope you see that in Exodus 19. But if we go back now, take your finger and flip back open to Jeremiah 31... Do you see any of these if, thens, and maybes in the new covenant? There are no ifs or maybes in the four verses of Jeremiah 31 through 34 that talk about the new covenant. Rather, ten times Jehovah says, I will or they shall. And therefore, these verses resound with a tone of divine certainty and sovereign determination for God to make a people for himself. I think this tone, actually, if you stay right there in Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34, I think the, 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 the tone of sovereign determination is only strengthened when you continue to read verses 35 through 37. So verse 34 ends the official statement about 
blessings that make up the new covenant. And then God begins to continue to talk about the people with whom he's going to covenant the new covenant. And he does so in verses 35 through 37. So there's no audience break, no contextual break here. Same group of people. Verse 35, let's read it together. Thus says the Lord who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from me, declares from before me, declares the Lord, then the offspring of Israel also shall cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out below, then I will also cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. In this language, we see that Jehovah makes his new covenant with sovereign determination that is backed by all of his almighty and infinite resources that are found within his own being. God is going to, with all of his heart and his soul, make for himself a people for his own praise and his own renown. There's another text of Jeremiah that alludes to the new covenant. Turn with me one chapter over to Jeremiah 32. Jeremiah 32 verses 40 and 41. We might turn to this passage twice in the course of our time together, but uh, this passage... I pray that just as Jesus said when he said his word goes forth as he's preaching, he says, if it, it said it'll be received if it's fine as a good and honest heart. Remember when he gave the parable of the four soils? There are some people who listen and they don't really listen and the devil takes away that which God planted in them. And there's some people who, you know, it, 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 the cares of life, they care about other things and not the word so it never grew, proves fruitful. And, but Jesus goes on eventually gets to, but people with good and honest hearts, Give a, an ear, who have an ear to hear, will receive it. I pray that you have an ear to receive this text. Jeremiah 32, verse 40. And I will make an everlasting covenant with them. And I will not turn away from them to do them good. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts so that they will not turn away from me. And I will rejoice over them to do them good. And I will faithfully plant them in the land with all my heart and all my soul. A chapter back, the Lord said he was going to make a new covenant with his eschatological Israel. He's going to forgive them of all their sins forever. He's going to write his law in their hearts. They shall be his people and he shall be their God. And what does this verse say? This verse says that those people, he is going to put his fear Fear that they should have towards him. He's going to put that in them. That's what it says in the text. And that they shall never turn away from him. And he will never turn away from them. Do you see the absolute sovereign determination that God will have a people for himself and he will bring everything to the table that is absolutely necessary for that to come to be. How then can free will be the hinge upon which your salvation turns if God's will and God's grace and God's resources are the hinge upon which you getting saved turns and upon which God will have a people ultimately for himself? If man's choice determines 
whether or not people are saved. If you must be consistent with that fact, with that thought. If man's choice determines who's going to be saved and who's not, then it is possible left to man's free will that no one would ever be saved. I mean, if the choice literally is just as simple as A and B, reject or receive, and man can go either way completely, and his will is suspended, unpressured by any external coercion or internal compulsion whatsoever, if he has just this perfect flat choice, A or B, then it's possible that everyone will choose either A or all will choose either B. It's possible that some might choose both. What about that? Now, what do we know? The Bible teaches a lot about man. And the Bible teaches that man is sinful and bound to his sin. The Bible over and over again, especially in places like Romans, calls us slaves of sin. The picture in Israel and the exodus that pictures the ultimate exodus of Christ saving his people, we just saw was a picture of people in absolute bondage to Egypt under the iron fist of Pharaoh, and they could not escape the domain of darkness. Therefore, one greater than Pharaoh had to go into Egypt and smite the God of the Egyptians and with great power bring his people out with an outstretched hand and a holy arm, as the psalmist says. Well, that's how Jesus saves, with an outstretched hand and a scepter of royal salvation. And I think we see it right here in text where God says, I am determined to save my people. The Lord Jesus, he came to seek and to save that which was lost, he said. And we like to get to that save part, but the first half is important. He came to seek them. Because we were not determined to be saved, were we? We were determined to go to hell. We were determined to keep sinning and keep our pleasures and love our sin and go in the direction of sinfulness rather than godliness. That was our predisposition. So what happened to us? For me, while I was 20 years old, what happened when suddenly I started to determine in the other direction? I didn't just get smarter, trust me. I don't think I'm smarter now. (laughs) I didn't suddenly just say, you know what? I think I'll wake up today and become Christian. It's not the way it happens. John 6 verse 44. No man can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. Christ has to reach into our heart, beckon by faith, draw and bring us into his kingdom. The scriptures teach. Why? Because we don't want to be in his kingdom by nature. Jesus said in John chapter 3, men love darkness rather than light. That's what we love. We love darkness. We hate lights. Therefore, how did we start loving that which, which we never loved before and started hating the darkness we once loved? How did we get there? Divine intervention through the sovereign grace of God working in the gospel began to call us. And we see that, and I'm getting ahead of myself, but we see that God is determined, just in the very covenantal language here, to have a people for himself, to seek and to save his own sheep. And he doesn't leave it up to man's free will to determine this. 
He leaves it up to his own divine and sovereign resources. Second point in my defense, the unbreakable character of the new covenant. This is highlighted throughout the passage, again, by the contrast between the nature of the old covenant and the nature of the new. It says, clearly the new covenant is not like the old covenant, and the point at which the difference is most plainly manifested is that the old covenant could and was broken. The old covenant could be broken. You see it in Deuteronomy 29, 25 through 28, Psalm 78, 10, 11, Jeremiah 11, 9 and 10, 22, 6 through 9, Jeremiah 34, 13 and 14, Ezekiel 44, 6 through 8. You look at all those verses, you know that the people broke the old covenant. I've already said that that happens. But notice what God says back in our home text. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, even though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. Friends, the old covenant, by its nature, did not ensure that those with whom it was made would finally gain the blessing it promised. The Old Covenant was a national, typological, provisional covenant, and it could not give eternal life. It should have led them to eternal life, for it declared the promises of God to them about the Redeemer, and it gave them pictures of His sacrifice and their temple worship and their sacrificial life and all those other things. However, it of itself could not give life. And that very covenant itself, which was provisional, temporal, and carnal, could be broken and was broken. Have you read the book of Ezra? God divorces himself from Israel. And, and we see that here in the text when it says, I was a husband to them. The Old Covenant could not bring about the blessings it promised. In and of itself, it could not do it. But Jeremiah 31 says that the New Covenant brings about all that it promises because it's backed by God's infallible power to bring it about. I will put my law within them. On their heart, I will write it. I will be their God. They shall be my people, and they shall not teach again each his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord. Why did the old Israel have to teach their neighbor and their Israelite brothers to know the Lord? Why did they have to say that to them? Because most of them didn't personally know the Lord. And they had to preach to even their Israelite brothers who were in covenant with God nationally to press on to know the Lord. Do you remember a little guy named Samuel in the Old, in the old Covenant? I love Samuel. He's one of my favorite Old Testament characters because here was a young man who, even though he didn't know the Lord, grace was working in his heart. And it said that even when the lamp at the temple at the end of the evening hadn't gone out, that Samuel was there in the presence of the Lord. And he was watching that candle grow dim. But it says in for Samuel 2, that he did not yet know the Lord. And then the Lord calls him, remember, three times. And he thinks Eli is talking to him in the other room, right? His mentor. And he's like, Eli, did you call me? Nope, go back to bed, kid. <laughs> Second time, Eli, master, did you call me? No, no. Third time, Eli, 
Come on now, the joke's wearing off. Did you call me? It's the Lord. Next time, say, your servant listens. That's what the prophet said when they responded to the voice of God. And, of course, he's called into belief and faith. Well, in the Old Covenant, people had a national relationship, but not a personal saving spiritual union with Christ, unless they believed the promise of the Redeemer to come, all that theology we've looked at before. But by and large, the people of Israel did not know the Lord, and they broke the covenant he made with them. Why? Because the covenant did not give them power to obey. It just gave them law and promises to believe and obey, and they failed. The covenant was broken. God divorced himself from them. He really, I'm, he, I was a husband to them. But the new covenant is everlasting in nature. It's not temporal. Jeremiah thirty-two forty. I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from them to do them good. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts so that they shall not turn away from me. That's what we see. And then in Hebrews 8, later in the Bible, um, the writer there says this about the new covenant people. He says, but now he, that is God, has appointed a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also, Jesus is, the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on, get this, better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second one. For finding fault with them, he says, Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Now, notice, I just read to you, by the way, Hebrews 8. And in Hebrews 8, 8, the problem with the first covenant was not just that it couldn't ultimately give that which it promised in and of itself. But the writer in Hebrews chapter 8 at verse 8 says that the problem was really and ultimately with the people with whom that old covenant was made. Notice it says he found fault with them. And then he says, therefore, I will effect a new covenant. Now, the old covenant did not secure the covenant keeping of those with whom it was made. That was its fault, the old covenant. And its fault was simply that it did not enable those with whom it was made to comply with all of its conditions. Therefore, the purpose of Jehovah, expressed in the new covenant, is seen as not being able to be thwarted. These people will come about because God will do everything to make sure that they come into his kingdom and that they remain there sovereignly by a provision of infallible grace. I think we see that in the new covenant. That's what's, that's what's different. He says, they shall be my, my people, I shall be their God. He writes his law on their hearts so that they have an inward and perpetual love furnished by grace in their hearts. And we see what else? We see that their sins completely are taken away. They have no guilt whatsoever. And therefore in Christ, they ultimately cannot break the covenant because they have no sins because of Christ, because of his death and resurrection. And we know through verse after verse in the book of Hebrews that Jesus is explicitly called the mediator of the new covenant. All the sins that we've occurred under breaking God's law, they were all imputed to Christ. And Christ was punished for our sins. And when the Spirit led us to faith in Christ, 
All that righteousness of Christ was imputed over to us as if we've lived his righteous life. And God relates to us as if we were Christ. No, not in the eternally begotten sense, in the sense of being another member of the Trinity, but it is Christ's own righteousness, Christ's own spirit, Christ's own merits and life and prayers that cover us, and God relates to us in Him. Therefore, how in the world could we ever break the new covenant if it hinges completely on the perfect infallibility of Christ, His work, His saving grace? He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says. Matter of fact, the one who applies the new covenant, the new covenant is of his own nature. It agrees with who he is. Back in Jeremiah uh, 31, we can go to two chapters over to verse chapter 33 that says, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the good word which I have previously spoken concerning the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch of David to spring forth, and he shall execute justice and righteousness on the earth. In those days, Judah shall be saved, Jerusalem shall dwell in safety, and this is the name by which he shall be called, the Lord our righteousness. Jehovah Sidkenu in the Hebrew, Yahweh Sidkenu, which means the Lord our righteousness. Friends, we have an infallible salvation because we have an infallible Savior. Jesus applies his mediatorial work to our hearts. And then we have union with him. God deals with us as if he were dealing with his own son, the Lord Jesus Christ, because we have Christ and Christ is in us. And we have union with that Christ. I think this does great damage to the belief that is so prevalent in our day that free will is sovereign in salvation. However, I know there's some difficulties in my final point today. There are some difficulties that must be cleared up. Because whenever someone for the first time starts to hear these truths, the first worry they have is, wait a minute, are you saying that God drags people kicking and screaming into the kingdom of heaven, that he goes against their will and they, you know, they don't want to be saved, but he's determined to save them? That's actually not what I'm saying. I know it sounds like it. The scriptures say that God seeks and saves his people. He woos them. He wins them. He draws them. He, the Bible, when it talks about God calling people, that rich word in the New Testament, look for it, called. Again and again, and I think we, we, we miss it so much in our day. You look at Jude, you look at 1 Corinthians, you look at almost any New Testament epistle. At some point, the Christians addressed in those epistles are going to be called the called. The calling of God opens our eyes to the beauty of Christ. This is, how, this is how the sovereign determination of God works on the will of a person to bring them to salvation. I love this. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. But God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone into our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The first half of that verse says, God who said let light shine out of darkness. 
That's creation, right? That's when God said, let there be light. Has now shown into our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God that is in the face of Jesus Christ. When God is determined to save someone, He shines the light of the gospel in them, and then they are able to see, having the scale of their sinful bondage lifted from their eyes, the darkness penetrated by spiritual light, they can see the glory of God and love the goodness of God in the glory of God that radiates from the face of Christ. That's what happens in salvation. We saw last week, Ezekiel 36, 26, God takes out a heart of stone and he puts in a heart of flesh. That's what that looks like. God suddenly takes our hatred for righteousness and our love for wickedness and he takes that heart out, puts a new heart in that truly loves righteousness, sees Christ connected to that righteousness, loves all that Christ is in that righteousness and a life that now is determined and, and dominated by Christ and his righteousness. That's, this is what is promised to us in the new covenant. These are the blessings that are determined by God that he will bring about. No man can save himself. And Arminianism has taught ever since the 1600s that you, you can save yourself. Salvation is 99.9% .9 up to God, but it's 0.1% up to you. That means you get 0.1% of the glory for saving yourself. And God does not share glory. He said in the Old Testament, literally those words, my glory I will not give to another. He alone is glorified in salvation, not man's will. And I hope this doesn't discourage you. I hope this doesn't discourage you from evangelism. I hope this doesn't discourage you from missions and corporal works of mercy. Because guess what this means? If we go out preaching the gospel of the new covenant, if we go out sharing Christ to people, the gospel is the power of God to save them. If God is determined to save some of those people we are witnessing to, then when we witness to them, the gospel is going to affect their hearts and change their lives. And they're going to love Christ. I think Calvinism is the greatest impetus to my evangelism. Why? Because if it's all up to how I present it in my free will and my own way of thinking and I get my little perfect decisional presentation out there for them to make a decision out of and I, and I tell them, make a decision, make a decision, pray a prayer, make a decision. And they don't make that decision, they don't pray that prayer, what am I going to do? I'm going to think, boy, I'm a real failure, man. I'm, uh, and you know, you're going to really beat yourself up really bad. But if you faithfully just preached Christ, if you presented the gospel, the law showing them their sin, Christ, the answer, their righteousness, and you call them to believe that, well, then it's up to God what happens in their hearts. And if he's determined to save them, he will. Ryan, is the implication that if he's not, he won't? Yes, but I've dealt with that in other sermons, the doctrine of reprobation. But I want us to see that the church is created on the foundation and in the context of sovereign grace. And it does not depend on man's will in the end and final analysis of it. These three distinctives that we've looked at over the course of the last three weeks, um, that the church is the true and eschatological Israel, and thus that changes everything about the way you view the end days and the church, um, that antinomianism, that the 
the law doesn't have a place, we've learned that it does. Decalogue is the ethic of the church. Ten Commandments is the Decalogue. And that's going to put you out of sorts with many evangelicals today as well. And this here, Calvinism over Arminianism, is really going to put you out of sorts with people who like to boast in their free will and their ability to save themselves. Um, we do not want to follow the popular wind of teaching in our culture. We want to root ourselves in robust biblical theology and be a church that teaches what God has revealed. This is not about being better than the other churches. It's about being biblical and being accountable to God for what we believe and what we teach. It's about purity of doctrine and not skewing the, the revelation of God to the world. Some of our brothers who are Arminians are Christians because they're inconsistent Arminians. God saved them by his grace and they just think too much of their free will and God has to teach them and lead them out of that kind of prideful thinking more and see, no, and the Lord saved me. He did it all. First five years of my, of my Christian life, I, I thought, you know, my will was pretty important as far as decisively being saved. And then God took the scriptures, particularly scriptures that talk about election and predestination. And I had to honestly read them, and I realized I had no leg to stand on. That free will is not sovereign salvation. God is. God decisively saves. Single-handedly saves. And ever since then, I've learned how deep the rabbit hole goes. And we see here that in the covenant of grace, God is completely sovereign in salvation. I know this church believes that. This church loves that. And so... Uh, I could beat the dead horse a little more, but let's pray and just rejoice in what the Lord is teaching us. Amen. Father, we thank you that, you that you have chosen us in Christ before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before you. In love, you have predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for yourself, for the praise of your glorious grace. That's scripture, Lord. It's Ephesians 1, 4 and 5 and 6. Lord, I thank you for James 1.18 that says, Out of his own will, he gave us new birth that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. What a privilege. John 15.16, remember, you did not choose me, but I have chosen you. Oh, Jesus, that you would choose me. I'm the most unlovable and choosable, reprehensible person that you could have chose. And I thank you. For sovereign grace that found me when I was 20 years old, lost in sin, and called me out of darkness that night in my mother's kitchen to bring me into the light. You broke me, and you called me. And I can only crown you with many crowns this morning, Lord. I don't stand here in a garb and behind a pulpit because I've arrived. I stand up here this morning because of grace and what it's done and what I trust it to continue to do because you are good and what you do is good. Lord, therefore, teach us all continually your decrees and how it is we are to walk and please and fear and obey you. And forever we will be happy in your presence as you sovereignly bring about everything that which you have chosen for us. The line has fallen for us in pleasant places. 
And we praise you for this in Jesus' name.